so you know, I like to kind of look up the guests and like see kind of what they did before, you know, kind of like what their education was and that kind of stuff. And um, whilst doing that, I found an interesting website. Are you familiar with the website stangel.stangel.eu? <laughs> no, it sounds funny. No, no I'm not. It's, <laughs> it's a website that I'm assuming someone with the surname Stangel made about all the famous people called Stangel. Oh, I see. It's a really long list of people who are called Stangel with surname. Well, yeah, um, let's hope I'm going to end up there sometime. You are, you are. That's that's how I found the website. You're on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I have to. I, now I have to write that down. I have to Google that definitely. <laughs> yeah, it says Matthias Stangel, postdoc forscher. So it's a, it's a German website and it briefly mentions your, in two sentences, kind of what you're doing. <laughs> Exciting! Oh, no, I'm okay. curious. So you're, okay. so you're not familiar with that website? No, I'm not. You know, I'm, okay. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't create it. So, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I think a guy called Werner Stangel might have created it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, so you're so you're not related to. I don't no, know no, I'm not. No, no I, okay. I'm definitely going to look it up. But no, no <laughs> is it a super common name? I mean, I don't know anyone apart. From, I mean, it sounds like a kind of Bavarian Austrian name. It is. It is. I, I am Austrian, actually. So, uh, so, and 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 it is common in Austria. But as soon as you leave Austria, Bavaria, it's kind of not very common. And um, yeah, but yeah, in in so where I grew up, uh, it's a couple of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of a common name. Um, in Styria, that's like in the southeast of Austria. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of like a mountain area, and it's uh, so like really, stereotypical really Austria. Yes, very, very much. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, by the way, there's lots of great people called Stangel, lots of chess <laughs> champions, Kegelmeister. Oh, yeah, uh, that that, so. that sounds very Austrian, too. <laughs> yeah, I see. Skatmeisterin. Okay. Anyway, so let's let's actually talk some, some science and some research then. So, yeah, so you have the, the two main papers that I've, uh, or the two papers of yours on this topic that I've read are the current biology one and the nature communications one. I think it makes sense to start with the current biology one. It seems to me that, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's both the historical and also conceptual kind of uh, sensible path. Um, so yeah, can you maybe like in I don't know, a minute or two, just briefly kind of explain what you did in that study, uh, maybe what the participants did and kind of what you found? Yeah, sure. So the, the main idea, um, what we wanted to look at is, if the, the grid cell system, or, you know, as far as we can measure that in humans, we're talking about grid cell-like representations because we don't have access to, to single neurons, or we sometimes have, but um, not typically with like fMRI, we can only measure population activity. So um, we wanted to see if the grid cell system um, was impaired in older adults. And um, this was especially because, so the, 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 the main reason why we wanted to do this is we wanted to see why navigation abilities are impaired in older age. We wanted to find potential causes of these impairments. And um, if you want to do that, if you want to research that, then there really is no way around grid cells because the grid cells are just such a key player in the navigation system. So, And also grid cells are mainly located in, in the entorhinal cortex, which is the or one of the very first region regions where neurodegenerative processes start like tau pathology and other things um, they start in the entorhinal cortex so we just felt it makes a lot of sense to look at um, whether 
impaired grid cell um, activation could be one of the key reasons for um, navigational decline in old age. To test this very, very um, simple idea, actually, we um, we uh, used fMRI, as I said before. So we asked people to, you know, perform a navigation task in the scanner. This was all virtual, virtual reality. So they moved around using like a joystick while they were in the scanner. Um, they moved around in a virtual environment and the task was also very simple. They just had to learn locations within this virtual room they were in. And after a while, when they had learned, you know, like whatever the soccer ball was in this corner of the room or whatever, then they were just repeatedly asked again and again to navigate to this place where they had learned that the soccer ball um, was. And they did this for like a long time. So um, it was probably not the most exciting task, um, but it allowed us to get a lot of data to then look at um, what these grid cells do while while um, our participants perform the task. So maybe actually one thing just before I forget it. So I did do an interview with Nicola Axmacher. It's, I don't know, episode 38 or something like that. Um, so just if this whole topic is interesting to the listeners, there's an entire episode on their science paper um, about doing this with basically grid cells and path integration and that kind of stuff and spatial navigation with people who are at a genetic risk of developing Alzheimer's. So just to mention that briefly, there's, if this is interesting, there's another entire episode on this. But yeah, so it seems to me there's kind of... Uh, there's kind of like three main findings, right, in some sense. So the first is the grid cell differences, or you, I guess you could say reduction um, in older people compared to younger people. The second is the path integration differences, right? And the third is kind of the combination of the two. Yes, yes, that's correct. I mean, we, we did know before, or it has been, it has been shown several times that path integration is impaired in older adults. So that wasn't really like a new finding but we but we were really interested first to see whether the grid cell system might be you know impaired or um or uh, grid cell like representations might be um reduced or compromised in old age and then we wanted kind of as a next step um we wanted to see whether this could actually cause um navigational impairments and so we looked at path integration in particular we were so this, it wasn't surprising that Older adults were worse in path integration than our younger adults, but our hypothesis really like were confirmed when we saw that those older adults who um, who were worse in path integration were also the ones who were um, showing the reduced grid cell like representations. Now, obviously, this is not like a proof for like a causal relationship, but it just shows us that um, this this um, these compromised grid cell-like representations could actually really serve as a, as an explanation for navigational deficits or path integration impairments in old age. Mm -hmm. I mean, so maybe to start, um, I'll talk about the grid cell aspect here. Um, the, the thing that was kind of most interesting to me, I think it was this parallel finding to the Kunz 2015 science paper where you found that the grid cell activity was... Um, if I understand it or remember correctly, that the, the main reason for the reduction in grid cell activity it was because it just wasn't as stable over time in terms of the direction in which the grid cells or the grid cell-like representation fired between the first and the second half of the study. So, so kind of what do you make of that? Because I have to admit, I don't know much about this temporal stability of grid cells. Um, can you maybe talk a bit more about kind of, yeah, what we know as a field about this? 
So I would say like about the temporal stability, we don't know too much, but it is very obvious that like a, a, a pattern forms. So a couple of findings come together and Lukas Kunz, Nikolai Axmachers and their colleagues on paper, that um, was like a first step really showing that temporal stability um, seems to be something that is um, is impaired, meaning that what we can measure is um, the orientation of this firing map. So basically the, the orientation of, of our internal coordinate system that grid cells um, form, that this is kind of, it's unstable, it kind of shifts over time. And um, it, it, so in rodent studies, it has been shown typically that, you know, this is kind of stable, like when you would go into like the same environment multiple times, um, it seems that this kind of coordinate system um, that grid cells form, that it seems to be pretty much um, anchored to something. We don't know exactly what it is, but it seems to be um, pretty stable. But um, what we see is that, and that's that's the same in our paper and in uh, the paper from, uh, led by Lucas Kunz, is that when these um, coordinate systems are less stable, when the temporal stability kind of is, is reduced, um, then this is kind of an indicator for um, reduced performance, and they see this already um, in younger, in younger um, adults who are at risk for developing like Alzheimer's, uh, and we see really the same thing. So it's it's very strikingly similar um, that we see the same thing in older adults, and particularly in those older adults who are who are worse in actual navigation performance or in path integration. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so so I, I kind of also got the the idea from your reading paper that this is something that's pretty new. Uh, yeah, there's just not that much done on it. I mean, you know, so I guess uh, maybe I'm asking you to speculate a bit here, and I guess to some extent you do that in the paper by suggesting that head direction cells maybe have something to do with it. Also, like one thing that's not entirely clear to me is why would it be a problem if grid cells aren't super stable over time as long as they can do it in a given moment? If I know where I'm right now, why is it a problem that five minutes later it's different grid cells doing it? Yeah, I was just surprised, I guess, by the finding. Oh, I see. Um, so I wouldn't interpret this as, you know, like just a different grid cell takes over with a different orientation. I, what I would, how I would interpret this is, um, that the firing of a single cell, but this is, this is, as you said, this is speculation, yeah, right? We yeah, don't yeah. know that. We don't have access to this kind of information in fMRI. But how I would interpret this um, is that a single cell, uh, that the firing of a single cell is just not stable. You know, these cells fire at particular locations in the environment. They form this kind of pattern. So if you look at the fMRI data that, that we see, I would speculate that um, the single cell firing that is the underlying basis for what we see in fMRI that the single cell firing is just not stable meaning that this one particular grid cell for, um, fires at a couple of locations in the room but then like 10 minutes later um, it's firing at slightly different slightly offset um, locations which um it's it's really not clear why this is causing an issue, but we see that this is is it's not what kind of a, a normal, very prototypical grid cell would do, or at least what we expect it to do. And um, figuring out 
why this is the problem and then as a next step what can we what can we do about it um is kind of is kind of really the next steps it's kind of the million dollar questions that that we don't know yeah it seems like you and the other group or groups on that paper added like a, a whole new question for people doing animal studies in particular like uh, animal models of neurodegenerative diseases to kind of see like yeah whether it's the case there too and why and yeah all that kind of stuff. I will say that I think it might. So th there are some there are some um, papers suggesting that it's more like a general mechanism um, uh, related to age related decline, at least in um, in spatially tuned um, cell firing. I can't remember exactly what papers these were, but I know I have seen papers also showing similar effects in place cells, for example, and. Not sure about heterection cells, but definitely in place cells, there was also, I, I think it's Carol Barnes, um, who had a couple of studies on that showing that also place cells have this kind of, they, these place cells seem to, to do their job. You know, they fire at a particular location in the room. It's just not stable over time. And in younger or in healthy or in high performing individuals, um, you see that this, these firing patterns are just more stable. So it might be that this is not something typical to grid cells. It could be that it's just a general age related issue in, in, in the firing of, you know, neurons or at least in the firing of spatially tuned neurons that they, they, actually function but um they are not functioning um in a stable way over time right. although i guess like the i mean isn't the idea that play cells get their information from grid cells so kind of if one isn't as stable then it kind of makes sense that the other as a downstream effect wouldn't be as stable either right it's true it's possible i would i have to say that it's it's also another open question so <laughs> yeah, yeah I initially many many people thought that this is the case that you know, place cells are formed by input from the enterine cortex, particularly grid cells, but um, also turned out over the last couple of years that it's probably more complicated than that. Um, but um, yes, I, I agree. But you could say the same thing also about grid cells. And we're trying to make this point also in the paper. We don't know whether grid cells are kind of the, 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 the source of the issue, right? It could be that that um, the information that is delivered to grid cells or to the grid cell system to the enterine cortex, it could be that um, the information um, is already kind of um, compromised before that stage. It could be that the information that is delivered to the grid cell system um, is already, you know, like not stable. And that's why grid cells maybe can't even form this stable pattern because, you know, potentially the head direction input that is then um, delivered to the grid cell system, which obviously is important if you think about your anchoring in an environment, you know, you, you probably the head direction system plays an important role. It could be that um, this is where it starts, or even in the sensory processing. Um, so it's it's hard to say where it starts, but definitely we see in grid cells um, or in grid cell-like representations, um, we see that at this stage, um, the, the information and the information processing is already compromised. Yeah, it's funny. I guess you have this like multiple streams of different things influencing each other and you've kind of found in the middle this one thing that doesn't work and now it's yeah like no idea whether it's the thing or anything that happened before or yeah whatever <laughs> exactly this 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 um to be honest this was one of the 
one of the reasons also why we want to look into exactly this question also more with like the computational modeling study. Um, we haven't talked about this yet, but, but this was one of the, the key reasons we, we at this point knew, um, okay, there is something going wrong in the, like the grid cell system. But, um, there are just so many other variables that, that we haven't, you know, like even considered or uh, it's just a complex picture. So we wanted to also take other variables into account. And, uh, yeah. So exactly what you said. It's, it's just a complicated picture. Seeing that the issue is already present at the grid cell system doesn't mean that it's the source. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, maybe shall we just go there then and talk about the nature communications paper? Yes. Um, of course. I have to admit, this is the one I'm probably least familiar with of the three we're going to discuss today. I guess in part because the details here are in the modeling, which is probably the, the point, my, my weaker point of these studies. Yeah, I guess we can still kind of discuss it and see kind of where we go. So maybe again, do you want to kind of briefly set the stage of, yeah, what, what this paper did or maybe how you got, I guess you already did, but yeah, kind of what were the main findings? Of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the main question was very similar to the paper that we talked about already. It's like, why, why is navigation impaired in old age? Um, so we do see this many, many times, but still we don't know what kind of processes, what kind of neural mechanisms or what, um, variables do actually play a role in this age related navigational decline. And again, what I said initially also is, um, navigation is just such a complex, um, function, such a complex ability. Um, so we also, uh, just looked at, uh, one specific subcomponent, which is path integration here, uh, which is just an important function in navigation, but it's, it's just one element, um, where you keep track of where you are by integrating self motion cues. And so we already knew from, um, from this current biology paper, um, that we've discussed, we already knew that the grid cell system does play an important role. And this has also been hypothesized and shown many times before, but also we knew, or at least we thought there are just many, many other factors and variables that could play a role, um, which were not like, we didn't look at these yet. Um, so. Now, having closely looked at the grid cell system also, we wanted to know what about the other variables, for example, you know, um, in navigation and also in path integration, for example, memory also plays an important role because, uh, because you need to, you know, like continuously maintain and update, um, a location, a location estimate, you know, um, information about where you are. And for that, you also need to remember, um, where you've been like, I don't know, three seconds ago, uh, these kind of things. Also, there is, there are ju just many, many other, um, variables involved. Like you could over or underestimate your self motion speed. And this is why, why your location estimate might be, might be, um, imprecise, for example, or something very, very different, like what we call reporting noise, for example. So it could be that people actually, I'm not sure how, how plausible this is, but theoretically it could be that someone is really, really good at path integration, really good at keeping track of where they are. It's just when you ask them about it, um, their report could be kind of noisy, could be, could be kind of wrong, right? Which doesn't have anything to do with path integration per se. It's just they are not able to translate this internal estimate to kind of an output. Or there could be something um, which we were obviously most interested in. Um, it's kind of, we call it internal noise. And so this is a, a vague term, but this is what we mean by the actual 
path integration computations, which is where you take sensory information and you compute your location estimate based on, based on the change in, in, in sensory information. So you basically move, you see that you move, you feel that you move, you take that information and then you compute your new position. And this, this process could also be noisy or could be imperfect. So, and, we wanted to know, um, so now knowing we, knowing that, um, all the adults are impaired in path integration, we didn't only want to know like how, how, how strong is this impairment? Um, we wanted to know what processes are going wrong. Um, what, what could be the, the sources and the causes for, um, path integration decline in older age? And so what we did is we, we teamed up with, um, computational neuroscientists, um, really, really, um, great scientists who, who built this, um, computational model. So this was Ila Fita and Ingmar Kanitscheider. Um, they, they were at the um, University of Texas in Austin and Ila Fita is now at MIT. And so we, we worked with them and they, they built this computational model, which takes the variables that I've explained and a couple of others into account and assumes that this location estimate that you continuously continuously update and maintain during during movement and that this location up estimate could be corrupted by these um, sources of error like what i said a memory component this internal noise this reporting errors these kind of things and um, so this model allowed us to estimate for each individual participant to estimate what was the contribution of each um, error source on their total path integration errors. So we disentangled these, these different um, influences of the different possible error sources and, and then wanted to look at which sources are actually driving um, the navigational errors, which drive, which are which are the major causes of path integration errors in both in younger adults and in older adults? The first thing um, that we found was very surprising because previously it always so, so a lot of studies have shown already that path integration is impaired in older adults, as I said. And always kind of, they were kind of speculating or assuming that memory plays an important role, right? That probably like memory is impaired in older age. And this is obviously an important component for path integration. So the assumption was that this memory component, which is also called memory decay or memory leak, kind of a forgetting of where you've been a little while ago, that this, this drives these navigational errors. And what we saw in our, in our task and in our model is, um, that this memory component actually did not play an important role at all. It was, it was, um, I think even, even like the, one of the weakest sources of error in, in, um, in our participants. And this is true for both young and older adults. So this was, this was a major finding, even though it was a non kind of, it was a non finding really, but, um, but it was interesting that it was so different to what everybody had assumed and expected. I mean, I guess the assumption is always that memory gets worse with age, right? I mean, that's exactly. the kind of obvious thing, but. Absolutely. And this, this, I think is why everybody was under the, under the belief that a memory would play an important role. But for this particular aspect of navigation, it seemed that uh, memory is not the driving factor and there is something else. And, um, we also saw that it's not these kind of these, you know, biases, biases and uh, like reporting errors or over underestimation of speed or something like that. We saw that it's really this internal noise that is the main source of error, both in young and in older adults, um, which is 
in a way also in line with with what we um, said earlier about you know the grid cell system and and these neural processes so it really shows that the actual path integration computations are um, impaired in this study uh, we didn't use fmri or any other neural recording so we can't really say whether it's it's originating in the grid cell system or where it really originates but we can tell it's really the path integration computation that goes wrong it's like at some stage uh, f starting from um, where you get the sensory information, where you process the sensory information, and then it reaches probably like the grid cell or the path integration system. Somewhere on that stage uh, or on these stages, there's, this seems to be like the main um, source of error and not so much the other variables that, that, we, that we looked into. And I guess the thing that, I mean, you kind of alluded to this already, but the thing that I found interesting is that it seems to me that the correct me if I'm wrong here, um, but like a very, very brief summary would be basically that older and younger people make the same kind of errors, but older people make more of them. Is that fair to say that like basically I think you said they both kind of have the same kind of reason for error, just that older people do a bit more of it, which I don't know. Initially, I also thought like in terms of clinical application, this probably is not good. Like you'd hope for a specific <laughs> difference rather than just you know, the same thing. I that, see, I see. Yeah, no, but I, but I, I agree. Um, I, I like that summary a lot. It's, it's actually a really, a really good description of, of what we think is happening. It's not like qualitatively very different between younger and older adults. Yes, they make the same kinds of errors and in both like age groups, um, a lot of variables like memory are not driving um, the the navigational errors, but older adults make more of this. So it seems that it seems like the problems that oh, problems. I mean, you know, this this is all like um, not a pathological level, but kind of the, yeah, the, yeah. the problems or the sources of error that are already present at younger age just get worse um, with older age. And you know, it could be that this is. Um, happening in the grid cell system but again as i said before it could also be that it happens before it could be like the sensory input to the grid cell system it could be head direction information all these kind of things um but yeah it seems it seems to be the the major source of error that is already present in younger adults seems to um get worse um with age yeah i mean maybe whilst you were so one, one main point kind of about this one i had or not necessarily main point but one thing i wanted to ask about um that you kind of alluded to just now is you know this kind of like where exactly does this noise or error come from in that sense and one thing i just just from like reading the abstract i think or something my initial thought was like okay like how does this relate to proprioception or something like that because in some sense yes. you know proprioception being kind of your awareness of where your body is in space i guess i hope that's a good uh, description and um so then i kind of what i was thinking about this okay like is there anything about grid cells and proprioception or because as far as i'm aware these are pretty i mean they're different research areas but it's fairly there's a lot of overlap between people who do proprioception and bodily awareness and spatial navigation right it's it's not that different but I, i'm not i'm unaware of any studies on this um, I mean, I'm not in the field, but do you know of anything? So, I mean, the question you're asking is is a really good one. It's a really important one. It's like, where does this noise come from, right? And um, unfortunately, it's, it's a beautiful question, but I, I don't have a, <laughs> a good answer to it. Um, particularly like with our with our study, yeah. 
um, we didn't have any neural recordings even, right? So we, so this is, this is the information that we get from a computational model, just, just looking at behavior. Um, so what we can say is we can exclude a couple of variables in this study, um, in terms of them not being like super important. And we can really say, okay, it's, it's the path integration computations that drive these errors. But at what stage of these processes, at what stage exactly um, this noise comes in, we don't know. And it's, it's, it's very possible that what you said, um, that I'm not sure it's proprioception per se. I think there are a couple yeah. of other good candidates, but yes, I, I 100% agree that the sensory information that you get, the processing of the sensory information even before it reaches the path integrator that um this can and yeah it's i think it's likely that um this plays plays an important role as well and i'm not 100% sure um but i think there are um studies pointing towards like vestibular information at least in rodents um vestibular information playing an important role I think um, there are studies showing that the grid cell pattern um, breaks down when you manipulate vestibular information um, or when vestibular information is, is reduced to the animals. Um, so at the same time, I will say that reading these papers, um, it's it's obviously very interesting but it's also not clear how it translates to humans because when it comes to exactly this like processing of sensory information about where we are i'm i'm under the belief that this is something very different between um humans and 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 rodents for example right so in humans we we kind of we i think use different sensory cues different sensory information to get an understanding of where we are we are probably also easier able to imagine being somewhere where we are not or uh, we don't have to go to a specific place to you know like explore it we can just look at it so i think humans are, are much more visually driven I was about to ask, do you mean like humans more use vision more and other animals use, uh, especially smell a lot more and that kind of stuff? Or? Exactly, exactly. So I think, I think, um, the kind of sensory information that we use to keep track of where we are is probably different in, in different species and in humans in particular. So I think, um, what we know from rodent studies might not be like, um, exactly the same when we look at humans and also i think i think this is an important point also because if um, these processes like also the grid cell system and, and uh, the processing of sensory information would be the same in in humans as it was in 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 rodents we would not actually even expect to see any grid cell like representations in fmri for example because because um these participants are not moving at all right they are in the scanner um, or with electrophysiological methods we see that pattern also when people are like in their hospital beds um, not moving at all they just they just um, navigate pretty much in a computer game with a joystick so you don't have that sensory information the only sensory information you have is, is pretty much vision but we still see um, grid cell um, firing patterns we see grid cell like representations so that already tells us that these systems might use different information in humans than they do in rodents, which yeah makes it makes it even more difficult to speculate about what is the driving source in humans now. Um, but yeah, again, again, it's perfectly 
perfectly possible that it is sensory information, it is um, proprioception or vestibular cues would be definitely something to look at, but also but also on, uh, other other sources of information. Okay, I know you're not uh, a rodent researcher, but this is just a question that occurred to me, so maybe you have an answer, maybe not. Uh, it just occurred to me that, I mean, I'm assuming that rodents move a lot around in the dark, um, if you're in a cave or whatever, or at night and that kind of stuff. But as far as I'm aware, I think most studies are done in light, right? I then it just occurred to me, like whether that whether we're in some sense maybe, I guess one question is whether there's a difference in navigational strategies for rodents, for example, or whether it doesn't make a difference. They just use a different sensory modality. Um, you know, when it's dark, they maybe use their smell sense of smell more than their sense of vision. But it also just occurred to me, like, are we in some sense maybe even testing rats in an environment they're not actually that familiar with i mean i i don't know what the etiology exactly of rats is and how much they actually spend in light and dark i was just, yeah do you know anything about this i don't know it just occurred to me whilst you said that yeah no it's a it's a good point um and i think that's that's also part of the reason why it is so important to take the findings that that we see in rodents but then um or or in, in other animals and then try to translate it to humans but also kind of try to be a little bit unbiased right because things are different we don't know exactly like what you said i i don't have the answer to that because i as you said i'm not a rodent researcher so i don't know how natural it is um for a rodent to to run around in light in dark in different conditions or in these cages but whatever we find we don't know exactly whether um whether it's going to be the same in humans and so that's something to look at very carefully um i do i do know that grid cells have been shown in rodents also to to show their typical firing also in darkness so it has been shown in darkness and in, yeah. in light um, which is which is also part of the reason why many people have started to speculate that it is kind of the neural basis for path integration because you you, you obviously can do, perform path integration um, also in darkness right so if also as a human like if you close your eyes if you walk around you always still maintain kind of a sense of where you are um, and 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 so. It does work in humans as well as in rodents, but how naturalistic these environments are in rodents, I, I I don't know. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, I think when I talked to Kate Jeffrey, I think she might have mentioned that something like grid cells. I hope I'm not talking nonsense here, but I think she might have said that um, they did a study and kind of when you turn the lights off and rats and their square boxes, that the grid cell pattern just gets weaker or something over time. And then when you turn the light on again, it gets back to normal i think i hope yeah take this with a large grain of salt but i think she said might have said that on my on my episode with her but yeah um uh, i don't know sorry did you want to add something to that or no i think i think it makes it makes perfect sense it's 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 in line with what i think what what i would expect so um i mean definitely you know we we also know also as humans we know it's you know harder to keep track of where where you are when you close your eyes, um, but still you're able to do it. And um, it does make sense that maybe that's too easy explanation, but it does make sense that, you know, like you see 
a similar pattern in rodents. If you're assuming that grid cells are the source of path integration, neuronal basis for that, um, it makes sense that they do function also in darkness, but also maybe the reduced activity is kind of an expression of, you know, more uncertainty, which in the end um, yeah. leads to, 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 um, maybe worse behavior. We don't know, but I think logically it, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think in this hypothetical or potential scenario that I mentioned with the rats in the dark and in the light, I think one reason may, I, I would be curious to see whether, or I'm assuming that this was probably in a fairly boring square box, but if they had like different um, olfactory cues around the place, then I could imagine that the effect would be less or something like that. But yeah, this is, again, I, I'm not sure whether she said this in the first place. <laughs> You know, this is the funny thing going back to what I, what we talked about in the right in the beginning. Like, there's just so much we don't know about this stuff. Absolutely, <laughs> like it, it, it feels yeah. the first time you hear about it, it's like, okay, we figured this out. Like, we know how spatial navigation works. We've got place cells, we've got grid cells, and then you actually try and you realize I mean, like, I, almost nothing that we know about it. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree. I mean, I feel I feel like that not only about you know grid cells or navigation. I feel honestly about the whole neuroscience field yeah. is like uh, and that, that's what makes it so exciting because every new paper or every every question that we're trying to address kind of opens up um 12 more <laughs> new questions right which are maybe yeah. even more exciting so it's um it's a good thing uh, but also it shows us all the time that um there is still <laughs> there is still a lot we don't know yet and there is still not a lot of work necessary to really understand what's going on and to you know then hopefully help when you know systems like don't work so well like in in old age or when it comes to interventions or, or disorders so yeah a, a lot of work to do yeah i uh, last point on this i remember when i between my bachelor's and master's i was doing like an internship i remember talking to someone who did um soon i had a, had a bachelor's in psychology but no real not real neuroscience at that point. And I remember talking to someone who did uh, some sort of neurocomputation at a cellular level, something like that. And I you know, asked her what she was doing. She said, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, well, I, I thought you knew how that worked. You know, I, I thought, you know, if you've got your action potential, like, what, what, what do you need? She's like, well, <laughs> it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah. But yeah, I guess we should probably start moving on to the next stuff otherwise we'll never get to it today but you already mentioned one point that actually you said you listened to my interview with Jakob Bermund right so yes. you probably heard your name then right yeah yeah I know. and yeah, so yeah. now I'm gonna ask that question so basically I asked Jakob um, whether he knew whether there's a difference between uh, basically would we have more grid cell firing or stronger grid cell firing when people are actually moving relative to when they're maybe you know in, lying in a scanner and only seeing it on a pc screen or imagining it um and jacob said i don't know <laughs> why do you ask i mean you're going to talk to matthias Stanger soon maybe he knows so do you know <laughs> uh yeah the <laughs> the sad answer is i i don't know um, <laughs> okay yeah. but um the good the silver lining is um we are on a good on a good path to hopefully find it out soon um uh, okay. because what what i've been doing and during my postdoc is to work with a very unique group of patients where we kind of finally get access to these signals right so to get access to deep brain oscillations um deep brain recordings while people are moving 
And so that allows us to address these questions, but still we are like at a very basic level. So we do develop paradigms and techniques and um, experiments where we test these kind of things, but still this is such a new area that we're just at the beginning try, trying to basically make this work like also from a technical perspective. And um, we now are at a stage where we can really start um, answering research questions, but we are at a very early stage. So we do see these grid-like patterns, for example, or other things um, that we'll probably talk about in a minute. We do see spatial representations, um, but we have not uh, and haven't yet directly compared this between like virtual reality and ambulatory movement. If I, if I'd have to speculate, I do think based on the data that I've seen so far, I do think that signals are um, stronger when participants are moving. Um, so for example, I, I have analyzed the same signals in terms of um, grid cell-like representations in fMRI, what we talked about before, and now looking at um, brain oscillations in, um, with electrophysiology while participants are moving. And the signals are very, very strong um, that we see um, while participants are walking around. But at the same time, you know, there are so many other variables that could cause this difference. Um, well, I mean, you have a different it's, imaging modality to begin exactly. with. Exactly. Yes, the, exactly. Like, like uh, basically everything's different, <laughs> yeah. right? So um, it's in the one yeah. case, we, we, we're measuring like hemodynamic response of the brain. In the other case, we're measuring brain oscillations. And yes, in the one case, they are like in, lying still in a scanner and just looking at a screen. In the other case, they are walking around. But um, I'm not able to tell you if like the fact that we see stronger signals when participants are walking around whether that's really caused by the fact that they are walking around or it's just electrophysiological methods or many many other things that are different mm -hmm. if you can't tell me this feel free to uh, just skip this question but uh, so is are you directly working right now on comparing physical movement to like computer-based movement or imagined movement or is that more um, I wasn't quite sure like how to interpret what you said earlier, whether this is something you're actually working on or it's more kind of an intuition based on having worked on the different parts. I'm, I'm not working on this particular question, so I can't really say much about it. But what I meant to say is that we finally have to talk, we as in not yeah, yeah, yeah. myself um, and, and maybe not our research group in general. Um, but, but, you know, the whole field is now able to look at these signals and answer these questions. But it's not something that I'm um, okay, okay, yeah. ex explicitly working on. I think we should probably start talking about the paper, otherwise we won't get yeah. around to it. So, I mean, I guess we've already mentioned quite a lot about kind of the circumstance in terms of you're using, you're working with patients here who are actually moving. But yeah, maybe as before, brief summary, what did you do? What did you find? Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so... The previous studies um, that I've done myself or in the whole field, you know, tells us a lot about, about navigation in general, like how do we keep track of where we are, the neural mechanisms. But one thing that, that we also have to acknowledge is that 
a lot of these studies, almost all of these studies come from, you know, neural measurements, measurements of, of brain activation that was measured in not very naturalistic environments, not very naturalistic navigation scenarios, right? So most of the studies have, including my own, my own work, most of these studies um, have been done like using virtual reality while you're actually not really moving, which is, you know, a question in itself, whether that's like um, navigation at all, right? So most of people are like in hospital beds um, while their brain activation is recorded and they do not move. They, they, they basically play a computer game on, on a computer screen, right? Or, or they are in fMRI scanners where you're kind of laying on a kind of a horizontal plane and look at a screen. So it's, it's a question, um, how this, I'm not saying so, so a lot of the findings that come from these studies are really, really important and, and, and very exciting. But still, we also have to see that, um, we have to, we have to ask the question to what extent this translates to actual physical navigation, to walking around in the real world, to not being in a, in a virtual environment, but being in a real room, uh, maybe also with other people. That's, that's, that's another important aspect of, of, um, real world navigation, right? You are not like playing a computer game where you drop off like a soccer ball in some corner of a virtual room. It's like, it's like you have, you have many more variables. And one of this is, for example, the, the interpersonal aspect, um, that also hasn't been addressed a lot in, in previous studies where, for example, if you, if you walk along a hallway, um, you, you know, you don't, you do not only have to have a representation of where you are, but you also need to know where other people are in, in order to, you know, avoid running into them or these kind of things. So, so these are the two key things that we wanted to address here. First, you know, um, investigate spatial representations and, and, and mechanisms of keeping track of where we are in the real world rather than, um, virtual reality and virtual environments and then also see if the same mechanisms that we use to keep track of where we are whether the same mechanisms also allow us to keep track of where others are in an environment it is um, hard to study or it has been hard to study uh, for a very long time because of as i said technical limitations right so it's just really hard to get to these brain um, recordings when people are just walking around in the real world but here when i started doing my postdoc i i had this really amazing opportunity to work with a very unique group of patients i said that before these are patients who have chronicle implant and this is a device that is implanted in their head um chronically that means like for for years or even decades um, these are epilepsy patients um, who have a very severe form of epilepsy um, and the idea is that this device um, it, this device comes with typically depth electrodes um, that are implanted in um, deep brain regions or in regions where their seizures might originate from um, which very often is hippocampus entron cortex medial temporal lobe which are the regions also where we are interested in a lot um, because that's where the navigation centers are kind of kind of located also or many of them and so these epilepsy patients have these electrodes with the idea the idea is that it helps them um, so this device detects continuously like 24 7 detects their um, oscillatory activation their brain activation in these brain regions with these electrodes and um, when it detects abnormal activity then it's then it's delivering stimulation in order to prevent seizures and um, this helps 
a lot of patients that I've seen, um, it helps them a lot. Like these patients are really able to, to, you know, go back to their jobs or have um, very, very normal daily lives. But so it's, it's, it's really good for them, but it's also like a very unique and great research opportunity because, because we finally have access to deep brain recordings of regions that are really essential for memory, for navigation, for all of that, while participants are, you know, doing all kinds of normal daily life tasks. They can do everything. They can just walk around and, and have a very normal daily life. The problem, though, is, as I said, this is a clinical system. It has been implanted not for research, but for um, clinical purpose. So we don't have easy access. It's not like you can plug in, you know, like a USB stick and, and, and get these data. It's, it's, um, you have to work really hard. And so one of the very first things when I, when I joined this group of Nantia Sutana at UCLA, one of the first things I was involved in um, was to develop this um, technical platform so that even allows us to um, get real-time recordings and also access to the stimulation capabilities of, of, of these um, devices, which then f finally, in the end, really allows us to 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 do these experiments. And that's what I what I said before. We can have access to these signals we can record them now is really the time to think about you know experiments to ask questions um, but uh, there was a lot of technical development um, necessary to get to this stage and there is also a paper in neuron from Ursh um, Topalovich from our group which basically just talks about the technical development of how how do we do that and it's not it's not trivial but that was kind of the, yeah, I mean, the prerequisite like the, for everything the first half was an engineering job and then you could do science after that exactly exactly and just very briefly going back that your background in programming probably didn't hurt either exactly it, it helps it helps with that kind of um, stuff and I, I mean in in our group at ucla you know nantia zutana she, like she she manages to put together like a, a really really awesome team of people who are you know like engineers and, and and people who 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 run experiments who design experiments but also there is a lot of technical development involved so like programmers um uh, electrical engineers like literally building physical <laughs> devices you know um it's not something that that you do on a daily basis like in um human you know fmri studies or whatever but um it, there is a lot of technical development and engineering necessary to run these studies and uh, and that's that's what this group has done that's what i've um started to do when i joined this group and it finally allowed us to to address research questions which is yeah that was a very long introduction to get to the actual i mean to I the actual you, paper yeah. <laughs> no no it was yeah so anyway so you uh yeah so you've got the other patients we know what they're doing they can move around so what was the finding what we finally were able to do is really look at these brain waves um during real world navigation during just walking around physically in a room right and and um what we wanted to do is we wanted to see how our own location or how, how the human brain during real world navigation represents location. How do we know where we are? What are the neural representations and the mechanisms that allow us to keep track of, of um, where we are? And one thing that we wanted to look at in particular were like theta oscillations, because it has been shown multiple times in other studies that theta oscillations is just a very prominent oscillation um, relevant for many things, including memory, including navigation processes. 
So we wanted to look at to look at um, how these theta oscillations actually help us to to keep track of where we are. And what we what we found in this study was that when participants were walking around and we measured their brain waves, so to say, their theta oscillations, um, while they were walking around, we found that the oscillatory power, like the amplitudes of these oscillations, um, they got stronger depending on where they were in the room. So it basically was a representation of their location. Specifically, um, theta oscillations had a stronger oscillatory power when you were, when participants were closer to a boundary, which in a way is a, a kind of a code for where, where we are, right? Or where participants were. But that was only the first part. And the second part of this study was we asked participants to not only walk around, but also at a different task. We asked the same participants to basically sit in the corner of the room and watch another person while this other person is walking around, um, which was, was me in this case, which was a very funny feeling, by the way, to just walk around in the room being, being watched by someone for like an hour. And I'm, I'm sure it was not a, not a very exciting thing for participants. But yeah, I'd say it must have been not much, not much less weird for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm not sure. It, 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 yeah, who felt um, <laughs> more strange? But anyways, it, it was a it was a funny scenario. But I mean, it worked out really well because what we did find is that participants used the same code to represent um, not only their own but really my location in this case. So they did not move at all. Um, they were just in the corner of the room, but. Their brain waves, their theta oscillations were modulated by, but where I was, where this other person was in the room. And this was just a really exciting finding because it was the very first time that somebody show, could show that, um, you know, someone's brain activation is actually influenced by another person's location. So, and, and, and this was a very, very strong effect. We see that in every single participant. So it seems to be like a really, a really strong, um, finding, um, that we have so here. I mean, is it fair to call it a boundary vector cell independent of person? near the boundary or is um i mean i'm not entirely sure what the definition of boundary vector so exactly is um, yeah but i see um so i i would not call it like that but it doesn't mean it's wrong it's 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 one possibility but at the same time the signal that we measure here stems from you know like many many cells like again populations of cells right right it's uh, to clarify you're using uh, intracranial eeg not yes uh, single it's not cell single depth cells. recordings or whatever yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah i should have um, mentioned this more clearly but it's it's population it's, um, it's local field potentials probably, um, from, um, many, many cells together. So it's the sum signal of many cells. And, um, it's possible that this, um, signal comes from, you know, like it, it has been shown there are what you said, um, boundary vector cells or there are border cells, but there are also other possibilities. It's possible that it comes from place cells, which also it has been shown that place cells tend to cluster around, you know, more boundaries or maybe like objects. And this is another possibility that the, the, the walls that we have used, or not that we have used the walls of this room in this experiment, right? There were just 
things on the wall. There were visual signs on the walls. There were, there were also things like, you know, like a Wi-Fi router or something like that. It could be that it's actually these objects in the room that were driving this response. We're not sure whether it's exactly the boundary per se or that it's something that is like on or near the boundary. So, so I wouldn't go as far as saying it's boundary vector cells. Um, but it's, it's obviously, it's obviously, um, reasonable to assume that this contributes to the signal, but with this kind of population level signal, it's kind of hard to disentangle and really say what cell type is driving it. That's something for, you know, then again, maybe going back to, um, single neuron recordings in, in, in stationary participants, like this is done, for example, also in, in epilepsy patients while they are in the hospital bed, you can get access to single neurons, um, which would be a very exciting next step to do that or hope for, um, another key technical development step, um, which would, you know, uh, hopefully at some point allow us to get not only intracranial EEG, but really single neuron recordings, um, while participants are walking. And I know that there are people working on this and I know that, that hopefully soon we will have access to this data and then we can really, you know, pin this population level finding down to specific cell types also be more specific about brain regions these kind of things uh, maybe uh, i'm curious was the initial plan of the study to start also with the someone else moving in the room because it seems like you know there's this huge kind of technical setup to get this to work and and then you kind of did two things right you did the one thing is the people moving through the room and then in the same study you also did watching someone else move through the room was that kind of planned from the beginning to not just do i mean in quotation marks just um so to not just do one of the first i don't know is this the first study to have people moving freely and no. get recordings okay yeah. no it's not it's not the very first um so there there has been work for example from um sarah agachan um also in this lab so I would say it's fair to say that this lab, Nathia Sutana's lab at UCLA is uh, one of the pioneering labs where this has been done. But the study that I, that I was involved in here, um, was not the first one. So it has been shown, for example, that, you know, uh, movement speed is modulated or movement, or that theta oscillations are modulated by movement speed when you are physically moving. And that has been shown um, in humans. In humans, exactly with with a very similar setup. The setup gets better and better, though. So we are now able to really, you know, even even um, as a next step, even you know, go outside, walk in, like in the real outside world, you know, outside the lab, and 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 so it's get, getting better and better. Um, and also there were some 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 improvements in my study compared to what has been done before, and there are also new improvements for future studies. But yeah, I also, yeah, and actually to, to answer your question, so it has been done before. Um, so this time it was not only the focus to, to have someone, you know, walk around and measure their brain activation. It was really the key idea to compare spatial representations between self navigation and when you keep track of another person to basically answer the question of do we use the same mechanism um, to keep track of where we are and where others are or um, how are the parallels how are the differences um. by the way is the signal equally strong for self and other or like what's the yeah, relationship there 
Yeah, it's it's not equally strong. I mean, it's also, again, you know, it's not a very fair comparison because when you're walking around, um, there is a lot more involved. Like, you know, you have this motor activity and all of that. So it's, it's not a completely fair comparison. But what we see is that the signal when you observe someone else is typically, you know, um, there is more variability. Plus one fi finding of this paper is also... Um, that you do not see exactly the same um, frequencies that that um, play a role during self-navigation compared to observation, because um, that's shown in the paper is that when you when you walk around yourself and basically um, your brain activation is modulated by your own location in the room, we see that this effect is um, is happening on a pretty broad um, frequency bandwidth like around say 3 to even 12 hertz so we do see the same effect also when you keep track of someone else but we see that it the, the frequency band where we see this effect is narrower we see that here um, only in around like 5 to 8 hertz so it could be now that the difference comes from the fact that in one case you are moving in the other case you are you are sitting, but it could also be that it's, you know, um, just a qualitative difference or, or just because the signal is maybe weaker, um, when you're keeping track of somebody else. It's, it's something, um, also that, that, um, are good questions to address in future studies. Um, and we are not exactly sure where that difference comes from, but we do see, um, we do see this difference. So it's not an identical signal and it's also not, a, not exactly the same strength. Yeah. Okay. It it seems to me uh, as if you've kind of found something you really enjoy in a place that you like being in. But postdocs positions tend to not be unlimited. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, kind of, what's the what's your plan there? Is uh, yeah, do you have lots of time to do more studies, or is it a kind of thing where you have to like stop in the middle of it and let <laughs> other people do that? Um, so yeah, so, so first of all, um, you, <laughs> you, you, your guess is very right. Like I, I really like where I am now. Like, um, this lab is really fantastic. It's, um, it's, it's great people like Nantia, the PI, she's, she's really great. And the opportunities we have here are unique, really awesome. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really, really good place to do science and, um, I would like to, to stay. Also, I think we're in a good position in terms of funding, um, so that we can continue with this line of work. Um, so it seems what we do is interesting enough for, for many other people and yeah. funding agencies that, um, we hopefully get. And it, it looks, it looks good. <laughs> um, so. And, and also for me personally, it looks like I want to and I will hopefully be able to continue this line of, of, of work. And, you know, this was really a first step, like first the technical development and then um, looking into, you know, this, this boundary say, related My, my first step, I don't think is going to lead to an age of publication. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, a good first I, step. You never know. You never know. I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have expected. I'm this looking forward well. to your second step. <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> you know, from, from here, it can only go downhill, yeah. basically. <laughs> so that's the other thing. No, but, um, yeah. no, but yeah, th this, this was very exciting. But I mean, you know, so many things came together. Like Nantia is like a, a really fantastic mentor. Um, the opportunities we have here are just really great. Literally every single person in this lab is, is just, 
really really good and really really nice so so That's it, it, and and you know just having these opportunities to work with these participants who are also really really great they really want to do this they really want to help us um doing this work so it's a it's just a very exciting place to be um but i also think this is the, the secret recipe for why these things really work out right um so having such a team having such such a pi having um having all of these resources really makes it makes this possible and then um yeah of course we were also we were also not expecting this to be so so strong and so exciting but yeah maybe a bit of luck yeah. involved as well <laughs> yeah I mean, I guess we kind of I had like one question, which is related to some of the stuff we've mentioned. And I guess you've kind of indirectly alluded it to by mentioning that funding right now is working well and people seem to be liking the stuff. So, I mean, it's been now, what, almost a year since you've had a first author publication in Nature. So what's that like? Is it, I mean, for me, Nature is always the, the most prestigious journal. Um, I think for me, a fairly clear number one. And uh, so... I don't know. Is it as good as you expected, or I don't know? Yeah, what's it? What's it like? <laughs> that's a that's a very good question. It's um, I'm assuming I'll get there multiple times soon, but you know. So what should I expect? <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a an incredible learning experience experience for me. I I have to say though that the experience publishing in this channel was not was not essentially different to to other journals. It was like, you know, the current biology paper was also very well received and 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 I I really loved that paper. And so it's uh I don't know what to say. It was it was just I, I felt I also felt it's more pressure <laughs> to be to be very honest. Um to, to because, have had to have that to be a person who's published in it or to oh try no, and get I, it published. Yeah, to try and get it okay. published in su in such a channel because you know, once you well, first you submit it there and you just hope that people like it, you know. But at some point you get reviews and then you realize, okay, well there is an actual chance to <laughs> to, yeah. to squeeze like, it in there. It's like, oh no, don't don't mess this up. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I worked like this was, this was actually during COVID time. So I worked in home office literally like 24 seven to work on these reviews and to work on everything the reviewers wanted to see. And, you know, so it, it was a lot of pressure, but, but it was at the end of the day, obviously it was a very exciting experience. Um, also very re rewarding. Um, there was a lot of attention also after we, after we published that paper. Um, I mean, that's how I found out about your research, right? Like even the other stuff that we talked mostly about today, yeah. I hadn't read that actually until then. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I I agree. But also, I think I'm not sure um, to what extent this is like about the journal. Um, I think I think what we what we did here was just really really um, exciting for many people because what I said it's 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 basically the first time um, or. It's maybe not the first time, but it's one of the first times where we can have brain activation um, measured in participants while they are just walking around. And then we can have brain activation for, you know, like when you are in a more like um, social or interpersonal context where you keep track of somebody else. It's just questions that, that are just really 
many people are probably interested in, but um, based on so many limitations, you can't really address them very well with, um, or it, it wasn't really possible before. And so I think the novelty of this, um, and then obviously the findings were also really new, really exciting. Um, so I think that that um, caused a lot of attention just based on what we did and not only where it was published but yeah obviously it's it's also for me as an early early career it's it's a it's a good thing uh i just saw on some ucla website there was a just like a little profile about you or something like that and i'm um, not entirely sure what it was but there was a one of the sentences i'm just going to read it said he has established collaborations with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, and the European Space Agency. What's it called? ESA? ESA? I don't know. And serves as a co-investigator on prestigious projects to characterize neurocognitive consequences of space flight in astronauts and identify neurobehavioral risks associated with future exploratory space missions and their mitigation. Uh, so, you know, you, you have a meeting to attend, but can you say like in one minute, what's... Uh, What's that? What's going oh, on yeah. there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, it's a little bit independent, but, um, but yes, also very exciting work. Um, so that's mainly, mainly, um, I was asked by Alexander Stahn, who, who originally was at, um, Charité in Berlin and now is at the University of Pennsylvania. So we want to look at, um, how spatial representations change, for example, in, in extreme conditions, like, for example, when you are in isolation. Um, and so we're working on that. Um, so there is funding from ESA and, um, and NASA to look at, you know, um, astronauts, you know, they are typically isolated <laughs> from the rest of the world when they are in space. And so this can be both simulated on Earth, like there are, they are like for weeks, um, in isolation. And we just wanted to see how that changes, um, how that changes spatial representations and your whole, like, you know, perception of space and, and how you keep track of where you are. And we, we do the same thing also with astronauts at the International Space Station. So we basically, so a lot of things change when you are in space. So when astronauts come back, a lot of things, um, are not exactly the same as when they left. And, um, I am particularly interested in looking into, um, you know, their spatial, um, representations and how, how this change um, from kind of having moved in 3d kind of or, exactly yeah it's just it's just a very so yeah. yeah we we can also see that um so this has been done this this was not by me but it has been shown al already that for example being in space you know it has physiological consequences to your body and one of this is for example that that you see um physiological changes changes in the hippocampus for example and um and so it makes sense to, and, and obviously, you know, your whole spatial perception and uh, your whole experience being in space is different when you are in actual outer space. So, so, um, so it makes sense to, to look at how this impacts, um, spatial representations in actual astronauts or just in this, in these very extreme conditions. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds all very exciting. I think at some point I have to, have you back to talk about your paper about the neural correlates of movement in space or something like that. <laughs> <laughs>